You're at the supermarket, you're halfway done with your shopping, and your toddler has an absolutely hysterical meltdown in front of everyone. What parent hasn't been there? And what's the right way to handle it? Today's show is all about tantrums and how to survive them. I'm Sarah Radigan, communications director for the Clay Center and continually questioning parent of a four-year-old. I hope you enjoy today's show as much as I did. Welcome to Shrinking It Down. I'm Dr. Ellen Broughton, and usually you will hear Dr. Steve Schlossman and Dr. Jean Bresson on here, but today I have the pleasure of doing uh, Shrinking It Down all on my own, and I have the real pleasure of speaking with Dr. Rebecca Hirschberg, who has written a wonderful book that I have read, The Tantrum Survival Guide. And even though I don't have toddlers anymore, it's a great book about how to cope with toddlers. In fact, the the um, second line of the title of the book is tune into your toddler's mind and your own to calm the craziness and make family fun again. Any of you who are listening who have had a toddler, this is one aspect of their personality you will never forget. And if you're in the middle of all this, we are going to have so many great ideas and great ways of thinking about this that will be very helpful to you. So, uh, thank you for joining us, Rebecca. This is great. It's my absolute pleasure. And I'm still just astounded that we can do this with me in New York and you in Prague. Yes. So that is one thing that we typically do on our podcast is talk a little bit about what's going on for us. And I think people who have listened to a few of the previous ones know that I am a visiting professor in the Czech Republic in Prague at Charles University at their College of Medicine. And so it's been wonderful being here. And yes, the world is all connected. So we can do this with you in New York. No one in Boston is even connected to us at all right now. So so before we get started, though, because I have tons of questions for you, tell us just a little bit about yourself and why you got interested in this topic. Sure. Um, so I'm a clinical psychologist, and my focus is on early childhood, which tends to mean, frankly, working with parents um, in a lot of different ways, although I've certainly done my share of working with children directly. Um I got into early childhood because I just feel like that's when all the connections are made and when the patterns become um, important. And so um, that's sort of how I landed in early childhood. I am practicing in New York City and in Westchester. And I have two little boys myself. Um, Henry is almost five and Zeke is three. And I think this topic ended up just being the perfect kind of blend of professional and personal. People say, how could you possibly write a book with, you know, at the time, like a, you know, a baby and a toddler at home. And it was like, because I was living it. Um, I had for years had people come into my practice and their number one question was, you know, oh my gosh, my toddlers are sociopaths, <laughs> help me. Um, and I had sort of been able to speak with them professionally, of course, with a particular angle and expertise. But then once I had my own kids, I realized that the story was a lot more complicated and I became really interested in diving into um, 
these types of behaviors because, as I said, I was living them. And so that's kind of how I landed here. It's very impressive for you to have done this. I, I, you know, I wrote my first book with kids, but they weren't that age. They were um, at least the youngest was six. And that's hard enough uh, being a mother and working full time and also writing a book. That's a that's quite a challenge with a five-year-old and a three-year-old. At first, I remember sitting down to outline the introduction while I was in the middle of pumping. And I was like, if anybody just had a camera, that would say everything I need to say right now. <laughs> but obviously, books are not, are not videos. But yeah, it was tough. It was also, I think, in some ways, kind of an out-of-body experience. And it was a nice escape, too. And it was a nice way of processing what I was going through. So thank you for your kind words. But I think I was selfishly motivated as well so it, yeah it's it's hard being a, a working mother and uh it's hard being a mother period right. every mother works so yeah so anyway i that's that was a great introduction to how real this topic is for you and it comes across as i read your book because it's very much um you talk a lot about just not just how to control your toddler but also about how to sort of deal with it yourself and how hard it is. Why don't you start by just giving us a definition of what are tantrums? Like, what are they? Yeah, and that's obviously where the book starts, mostly because I think there's so many misconceptions about this. I think put at the most basic level, a tantrum is kind of a behavioral expression of emotions that are overwhelming in some ways to kids or frankly to adults. I mean, kids are not the only ones who have tantrums. And I think oftentimes people think tantrums only happen in the context of, you know, um, I want another something, I can't get another something, you know, sort of wanting your way or, or else. And tantrums can also happen when anxiety gets overwhelming or frankly, exhaustion or, um, you know, the other day when it was frigid, <laughs> you're in Prague, I don't know what it was like there. In New York City, it was frigid and certainly in Boston. Um, and I almost had a tantrum because I was waiting on a curb and, and cars kept coming and I just felt like pedestrians should have right of way in that weather. And it's because I was freezing. It's when some sort of body sensation or emotion gets so strong that particularly in little kids because of where they are in terms of their stage of development, they only know how to express or only can express behaviorally um, and frequently with a behavior that's quote unquote, you know, not acceptable or acting out or disruptive or whatever word you want to use there. Um, you see that on the uh, sports fields, especially when I think about adult tantrums, either uh, coaches, players, parents on the sidelines, but, but uh, toddlers are, are the ones who have it really mastered. What, what is it, though, about toddlers' brains? You, you talk a little bit about this in your book that make tantrums or make them so much more uh, prone to having tantrums. What is it about their brains and also their, their development? I, it, they go hand in hand, but what, what is it about that? Yeah, I mean, the the I try really hard in the book and in my clinical work and right now not to go down a rabbit hole of, you know, boring brain science. <laughs> but essentially, the the idea is that when you are born, and then certainly moving through early childhood, the part of the brain that's most developed is the emotional centers in the brain, the amygdala, um, and, and the areas devoted to 
anger and love and fear. These are things you see really young children experiencing from very early on. What you don't see as much of is rational judgment and planning and impulse control. And that's because on many levels, the brain the parts of the brain that are devoted to those skills have not yet developed. They are in the cerebral cortex, which is the outside of the brain, and that develops later. The part that develops latest is the frontal part of that, the frontal cortex, which is executive functioning, um, which the Harvard Center uh, for Child Development calls the, I think it's the air traffic control system of thinking, which is, it's the person in charge of who are all the planes coming in and the planes going out and how do I direct them? And kids don't have that at all. Um, and so they're much more prone to feel strong emotions without being able to tamp them down with rational judgment or impulse control. Because not only are the, the emotional centers are much further developed, but also the connections, the neural pathways between those areas of the brain are not well developed. So that even, I see this all the time, even if parents Parents will say, my child knows not to hit his little sister. You know, he knows, he'll tell me, he knows it hurts her, he knows not to do it. And then 10 minutes later, she'll take a toy of his and he'll smack her. And it's like, right, he does, know, when he is calm and he's gotten enough sleep and he's well fed and he's in a good mood, you know, there are certain things that he knows. But once those emotion systems have kicked in, those emotion systems can't communicate with the parts of his brain that do know that. And so the impulses and the aggression and whatever it else takes over. Yeah, that's a great explanation of it. It's funny, this morning I was lecturing about, to medical school students, about adolescent development. And it's sort of like the bookend to this, where the adolescent has the, the more, the capacity, the brain is now fully, not fully developed, but as large as it will ever be but the connections aren't there. So the brain sort of goes through another surge of growth, but they're not, their frontal lobes are also not developed in a way where that those connections and those things are made, which is why they're prone to also a different kind of acting out. It's just sort of interesting to think about that in terms of across the, the lifespan. So are, are there certain things that trigger kids to have certain tantrums? And we're talking about toddlers, certain areas, different sorts of triggers. Um, target, going to target. <laughs> I mean, I, I think the way to answer that question, because those situations, I mean, first of all, there's things that are very clearly biologically driven, like a lack of sleep or being hungry. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's that great expression. I don't even know where it's from, but halt, hunger, anger, if you're if you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, <laughs> you have yeah, to hold and address those needs, um, and that's true for grown-ups too. And and I would say there are absolutely tantrums that come from those, but tantrums come, as I said, from overwhelming emotional experiences. And so a trigger would be something that's overwhelming emotionally, or frankly, with regard to sort of sensory stimulation. So that's why I sort of laughingly said Target, but a big box store, or a supermarket, or a family gathering. Um, and then I think there's other things always to consider too, like expressive language delays. I mean, there's many, many sort of quote unquote causes for tantrums. And one of the things the book does is make sure parents think kind of holistically about it so that, you know, if your child, um, you know, starts throwing a tantrum, let's say at the supermarket, when you say they can't have a candy bar, um, that's kind of the most immediate cause of that tantrum, but it's important to look 
beyond that, you know, how much sleep did your kid get? Is there a new sibling? What's your mood like? And have you suddenly become anxious, which means that your child is more likely to feel disconnected from you and throw a tantrum. And there's a page in the book that's kind of a, a chain analysis, kind of when tantrums are starting to get worse in your home, either in frequency or intensity or duration, to make sure you're looking at all of those factors and not just you know, my toddler has a meltdown every time I say no, because sure, no is the immediate trigger, but if things are getting worse, chances are there's something else going on. So let's get into just the what to do about this. And and I'm just going to throw out the number one, you already hit on this already, but everybody wants to know the answer to this question. Anyone who's who's struggling with toddlerhood is going to ask exactly what do you do in Target? What do you do in the supermarket? <laughs> What is it? Your child throws the tantrum. What do you do? Now, you already mentioned a lot of things that you want to make sure these things, we prevent these things from happening, but you, but, but what do you do? Your child is two and a half. They throw a tantrum in the supermarket. What do you do? So I'm going to start with something that people are going to feel frustrated to hear, I think, which is to say there's no right answer. Like, I think that's the first place that we all get stuck is like exactly that question you're asking is, what do I do? And if I think hard enough or I read enough books or I, you know, work hard enough or I'm a good enough mom or dad, I will know exactly what to do in that moment. And that presupposes that there's such thing as the one right thing to do. I think you have to know your kid. You have to know yourself. I think that the, that's a really important thing just to say first is that, there's probably 10 different things at least you could do and none of them are are going to make me blanch like oh my gosh how could you possibly do that um i think generally though some guidelines the number one thing i tell parents to do when their kid starts having a tantrum wherever it is um is to calm themselves down that taking five seconds in the big picture is not going to make their child's tantrum you know that much worse and if they can do something really simple like feel their feet on the ground or do that great exercise of the senses the the five, four, three, two, one, you know, what are five things you see? What are four things you can hear? What are three things you can smell to, you know, touch, taste, really get into your body, get into your senses and just take a moment. I mean, the book talks a lot about the power of the pause. Just take a moment to decide how you want to respond. Calm yourself down so that you can decide. And then it may be, I want to get down on the floor with my kid and just empathize with her because she just needs a hug because she's, we've been doing errands all day long and this is just, she's at the end of her rope. Or um, she's been great and fine all day and she knows that this works, but it's not going to work this time. And so I'm going to respond with just a clear, firm limit and I'm going to pick her up and we're going to finish getting our groceries quickly and I'm going to leave the store. Or, you know, in other words, just this idea that you can respond in a thoughtful and intentional way based on what's going on with your kid, what's going on with you, once you've taken that time to regulate yourself. I would say that's the number one most important thing. The other less important, but I think um, notable thing in those types of situations, the kind of public setting, is that I've seen more tantrums get worse when 
parents kind of join with everybody except their child. I've seen this happen in the playground multiple times when I'm with my kids, um, but also at family gatherings and again in supermarkets, but where your kid, your kid starts and it's the most natural understandable thing in the world but your kid starts throwing a tantrum and the first thing you do is look around with concern at what other people are thinking mm -hmm. and kids feel that kids feel that rupture in the connection um and i would say to the extent we can be conscious of first paying attention to our kid in whatever way we decide that to be before we decide that you know, the lady behind us in line is our new best friend. And so the most important thing is for us to look at her apologetically. And I've seen kids have these real, you know, you can never read kids' minds or people's minds, but they really look like, what do you do? Like, who is that lady? You know, and why are you talking to her right now? I am falling apart. <laughs> yeah. But we do that. We do that because, again, I think that power of, of mom guilt or embarrassment or dad, I should say dad as well, certainly is powerful. Yeah. No, you bring up such a good point because I think that there's so much shame around when our kids don't behave well. And um, I think that thinking that we also need to stay calm in that situation is the last thing most parents tend to think of. I also think, you know, one of the questions that I hear a lot and uh, I, I, somebody asked me as they knew that we were talking about this, it, and it kind of relates to the situation you were talking about is what do parents do with the people, the bystanders around them? What about the people who say to them, what, you know, get your child under control or, you know, he's misbehaving or there, people will say that. What should parents do in those situations? You know, I, I, I still think, I mean, not to be a broken record, the, like take a deep breath and just let it go. Like pay attention to your kid. You're not, you're never going to see that person again. Chances are, I mean, if you live in a very small town and it's your neighbor, you know, then maybe you circle back the next day and say, you know, please don't say things like that in front of me and my kid in the supermarket, but chances are, you're not going to see that person again. And it, what happens in those moments is we get so overcome. I mean, I can almost feel it as I'm talking, like your heart starts pounding, your cheeks get red. You get so overcome with shame or rage, right? I've seen, mm -hmm. I've seen a parent trying to calm a kid down and somebody says something like that and they turn around and they say, mind your own business or something. That's not going to, your number one goal is to calm your kid down. Mm -hmm. Now your kid is having a tantrum because whatever set off the tantrum coupled with, you know, mom or dad is suddenly, you know, losing their temper, which is disconcerting for kids. Like, I think if we can just tune those voices out, like you need to say something, something really calm, like, thank you. That's helpful. <laughs> you know, whatever, but just stay calm. And I should tell the people listening too that in your book, you devote a whole chapter, I think, on just the supermarket. I, I devote a whole chapter to tricky settings, and yes. the supermarket is one of them. Pretty much, yes. It's I, I See, I read it almost as the supermarket, because <laughs> in for all of us, my kids are older now, but for all of us, it was the supermarket that was always the most embarrassing situation. Um, because, you know, if you're, if a kid's having a tantrum on the way to school, you know, into preschool or something, well, everybody, you know, everybody tends to struggle with that at one point or not or another. And if they don't, well, those are usually the parents who, you know, uh, like that, who are unsympathetic, but for the most part, every parent <laughs> has been through that. So yeah, there are just certain times and, and places that 
are, are difficult for kids. But, you know, I'm, I'm really curious about this idea, though, because you talk a lot in the book about parental just parental expectations and what we as parents bring to this relationship. And that, you know, it's not really, I always think in some ways the tough things that my kids had, even when they were much older than, than a preschooler were harder on me than they were on them. Um, you know, even thinking back to some of the social situations that, you know, my daughter would have been in, in normal, totally normal things in middle school. I just remember thinking like, oh my gosh, this is so awful. How could, you know, this friend do this to her? And if I brought that up to her now, she's, you know, in her late 20s, she'd be like, mom, why do you remember that? Like, that's not a big deal. So I think that it, the same goes for this age group that there are, uh, you know, we bring our own baggage to things. And even, you know, we just bring our own sort of um, issues in a way that um, color everything that our child does. So I don't know, that's sort of an open-ended question. I thought you did a beautiful job of talking about that in the book and, and helping parents look inward. I don't know, what, what are some of, what's some of the baggage that parents typically bring with them? It's such a huge, I mean, it's, it's like the question, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of the number one, the number one thing that I think gets overlooked a lot when we think about tantrums and kids' behavior is how much it's an interaction um, and that the caregiver or the parent involved is, is adding to it just as much. Um, you know, I think the, the, what I see as being the baggage most of all is how we were raised as kids we either want to do something completely differently or completely the same, but whatever it is, we're not tuned into the present moment with our kid. We're much more consciously or otherwise thinking about our own stories. Um, I see a lot of baggage around, um, certainly if it's a two parent family relationship with your partner and, oh, well, he, you know, my partner's going to think I'm being too strict, so I'm going to loosen up, but that doesn't feel authentic to me. And then your kid sense, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, socioeconomic issues, you know, my kid is going to be entitled. My kid is going to be spoiled. My kid isn't going to respect me. What if I ever spoke this way to my grandmother? I have to do it different. We just come with so many stories and, and narratives. And I think the number one thing we can do is just learn to be aware of those as they happen. I've met with so many parents who say, I mean, I live in New York City, like the therapy, you know, I don't live there anymore, but the therapy capital of the world. So a lot of parents have been through their own therapy. They like know their stuff backwards and forwards, but they'll say those first few years of their kids' lives, stuff comes up that they thought they had resolved because yeah. it just comes up in a whole new way. And, and, you know, when you asked your question, I was thinking about that great expression of, um, I don't even know who to attribute it to, but that having a child is like having your heart outside your body kind of running around. Um, and I had it, I, you know, I will never forget it when Henry, who's now almost five, when he was about two and a half, I picked him up early from daycare and he was playing in the sandbox and all, you know, they were all pretending to make a cake in the sandbox and they were all pretending to, the kids who were a little older were pretending to eat the cake. And he, you know, quote unquote, pretended to eat the cake, but he didn't realize that he couldn't actually eat the sand yes, yes. so he started to eat the cake and he put it in his mouth and he started spitting it out and the other kids on the playground said you know like no you silly it's you know it's it's you're supposed to pretend and and henry my little guy put his head on my leg and just looked so embarrassed and i i mean i was ready to like take out every one of those three-year-olds yes. for teasing my kid 
I remember it vividly. There is no question in my mind that Henry was a thousand percent unscathed. Completely. I mean, and I felt like I was going to throw up. And it was like, and again, that was a sign to me of whatever's going on here. I got to figure this out because this is the first of a gazillion times that my kid is going to be embarrassed with friends or whatever you want to call all that. Yeah. And when really the other kids were just saying like, you don't eat that. It wasn't even, yeah. Yeah. It was the most benign quote unquote social conflict you could have. And I still felt like I was going to write. Right. And the thing is too, I think sometimes we forget that it's those sorts of things that kids remember. He'll never do that again, ever. Um, And, uh, you know, I grew up in a big family and and in a big family, your siblings always said that, why, why did you think about doing that? And you wouldn't think anything of it because it wasn't strangers doing this. And now it's, 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 it's harder when you see, you know, other kids that you want them to be friends with. And, um, but yes, you're right. It's, it's benign, but yet there are different things that when we see our child shunned by somebody or, you know, someone says something, even innocuous, that just seems really, um, seems to be more about us than about them. Yeah. It's, it's part of being a parent. It's what makes parenting more interesting, I think, too. You know, you bring up, though, it's sort of, you're t- sort of talking in some ways, too, as well, about temperament and the role of temperament and how that plays into tantrums. But also, I wonder if it plays into, as well, um, you know, just the, the parent's ten- uh, temperament as well. Do you, do you find that's a big issue? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of traits and temperament that have to do with how deeply we feel things, um, you know, or how reactive we are. I think, you know, reactivity and emotionality, those are all part of temperament. And um, I think there's kind of two main things that I see and that I write about. One is modeling. So, you know, I think I mentioned, because I'll never forget in the book, meeting with a couple um, about their kids' tantrums, and the dad suddenly takes out his iPhone and lets out this giant expletive, which I won't say in the in the on the podcast, but sort of like, oh, God, you know, and and I sort of jumped in my seat, and it turns out, you know, I don't even remember the issue. He was like late for a meeting or something that was I like that just, but he it led to a really interesting conversation about just how reactive he is as a person and always has been, mm-hmm. and that the kids. Not only is there genetic loading there possibly, but there's modeling and environmental loading and that we have to watch our own reactions to things. The other way that I think temperament plays an important role is in terms of fit. And I've seen a lot of um, behavioral struggles happening between parents and kids where one of the main things that I think happens with kids and tantrums is they just, they feel like someone doesn't get what they're going through and that's a really difficult feeling and so they kind of amp up the behaviors not on purpose but so that to somehow communicate this is a big deal and I you know so a great example and a common example is a is a toddler who doesn't want to go into a birthday party um, because they're shy and a parent who's a total extrovert who just doesn't genuinely and very you know, from a very good place, doesn't understand it and keeps pushing the kid like, come on, you'll have so much fun. Come on, come on. And the kid just needs from a temperamental standpoint, more time to warm up. And the kid will have kind of more and more of a behavioral outburst because the parent 
truly doesn't understand what the kid needs in that moment and is pushing them in a way that goes against kind of who they are temperamentally. And so that idea of fit, and not that you can ever change who you are to adjust to your child, but certainly that you can observe your child and adapt your behavior, I think is an important an important piece of it all. Well, I have just one, uh, just time for one more question. And I'm going to say this because there are a few people that I know who are having second chi children or just had a second child. And I think that's one of the things that you talk about as a potential difficult time for some families, moving, having a new baby. And so I know our communications director at the Clay Center, Sarah Radigan's having another baby. Yes. Um, and so I, she didn't ask me to ask this, but, um, but I, it, it's such a hard thing because even when she's got it, you know, her child or older child is, uh, is out of toddler, you know, sort of like that really young toddlerhood stage, but sometimes four and five and six year olds can start to act like toddlers when a new baby comes in the house, any tips or things that you might, that they might find helpful yeah, for sure. And it, you know, in some ways it ties back to the supermarket question as well, although obviously a new baby is much more complicated than a trip to a <laughs> supermarket. But it's this idea of anticipating. Um, and kind of, you know, I use the word with clients a lot, pre-gaming. Um, you know, what can you what can you sort of anticipate um happening for your kid? And so um in the case of the supermarket, it's you know, how do you come up with fun games and conversations and whatever to have to to get past it. And with a new sibling, it's anticipating really complicated emotions. Um, and I think there's two kind of main pieces of advice that I would give. The first is you have to build in special time with your older sibling. Um, you know, so if your older sibling's name, in the case of mine, Henry, you know, special mommy Henry time. And that has to happen every day. Um, and I, you know, it's one of, once you have a kid that whole like sleep when the baby sleeps, like, uh, uh, only if your older kid is off at school, <laughs> you know, like you really, yeah. it's, it's, you really gotta put in that time with your older one to ease that transition because their whole world has been rocked. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you've heard the analogy about how when there's a new sibling, it's like, it's like your spouse saying to you, I'm going to, I'm going to bring home a new wife. Or I'm going to bring home a new husband. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the second piece of advice I would say is to is to model to make room for different emotional reactions, and so to say things in really simple terms, depending how young your kid is, like um, "I love your new baby brother," and "I really miss how it was when it was just the three of us." Oh yeah, because we know as parents that it's complicated and and yet everybody makes it very simple for kids oh are you so excited to be a baby bro a big brother are you so excited to be a big sister yeah very good point making space for complicated emotions when the baby is sleeping saying something like "Ooh, your brother's sleeping which means we get to pretend for a little bit that it's the way it was. And sometimes I miss that high five. You know, you're not throwing the new baby under the bus. You're just making it okay for your child to feel, your older child to feel exactly what they're already feeling. And once they feel safe feeling those things, their behaviors tend to really get better. That's a great point. Well, on that extremely helpful point, 
Um, I think that we have to end today. There's so much to talk about with this, and I'm so happy that you were here to do that. The book is terrific, The Tantrum Survival Guide. Um, if you're the parent of a toddler, you will find it helpful. And I, like I said, found it very interesting. And even again, thinking there's a lot about, it's not just about what to do with your toddler. It's kind of how to um, think about yourself too, which is, there's always room for growth in all of us with that. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a real treat. I really appreciate being here.